Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to AccessibleWorld.org, to our auditorium. Uh, the date is June twenty second, 2010, and we are back again with our dear friend Ira Fistel to discuss part two on the life and works of Mark Twain. So I'm going to step out of the way because I'm really excited. Bonnie Blose is here also as our host, and we appreciate that. So without further ado, Ira, the microphone is yours, or the telephone is yours. Uh, thank you. Uh, what I'm going to do tonight, uh, we start out with the idea of talking about the novels of Mark Twain. Uh, the trouble with that is you can't possibly do a decent job on the novels of Mark Twain in an hour. So what I thought we'd do tonight is do Mark Twain's first novel, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Uh, not, I'm sorry, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. And then... Um, do it as a series, doing Huckleberry Finn later, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, putting Ned Wilson, uh, you know, the other Mark Twain novels. So tonight we're going to concentrate on the adventures of Tom Sawyer. Now, as you know, um, I've been a talk show host for many, many years, but I've also been a teacher of American literature and American history. And I've done all this work on these uh, books of Mark Twain as part of uh, my teaching career. And I think you'll find that there's an enormous amount of material in, uh, to talk about in these novels. Uh, how many people have read these novels are listening tonight, I don't know. But uh, you may never have read Tom Sawyer. If you haven't, you'll still, you still won't lose anything in the discussion. But if you get a chance before we do the next one, see if you can't read The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn before or, or hear it on a, you know, a, a, what do you call it, an audio book. Uh, before we do the next lecture, because I think you'll get a lot more fun out of it. All right, as to Tom Sawyer, Mark Twain had never really written a, a novel before Tom Sawyer. He had written three, uh, three books that he had published before. Uh, the first one was a uh, collection of humor sketches. The second was The Innocents Abroad, which is a travel book, and Roughing It, which is also a semi-fictionalized account, uh, his travel and uh, his adventures in the Comstock, La Roche. Uh, he also wrote or co-wrote a book called The Gilded Age. It's not really a Mark Twain novel, however, because he wrote it with his friend and neighbor, Charles Studley Warner, on a challenge from their wives. Their wives, were, they were having a dinner party one night, and the women said, uh, oh, you guys think you're so good. Why don't you write something? <laughs> so they wrote together uh, The Gilded Age, which is a terrific criticism of the Gilded Age, the um, period after the Civil War, when uh, there were no limits on anything, including things like government corruption. Uh, and The Gilded Age is a, is a devastating criticism. Anyway, before 1874 then, uh, Clemens said, or Tom, I, I call him Clemens, by the way, when I want to talk about the man. I call him Mark Twain when I want to talk about as an, as an author. And I think there's a reason for that. The two personalities uh, were by no means the same, and the older he got, the more uh, they diverged. So anyway, before 19, 1874, uh, Mark Twain had never attempted to write a full-length novel which required him as a sole author to construct a plot, to create characters, and the first time he did that began in the summer of 1874. Now, Clemens was born in 1835, so he was just short of 40 years old at the time he uh, started working on this. And he had already had a number of careers behind him by this time. He had been a journeyman printer, a steamboat pilot, a silver prospector, a newspaper reporter, a foreign correspondent, an editor, and a platform speaker. And his travel books, especially The Innocents Abroad, had uh, earned him fame and fortune. He'd already been to England and been uh, applauded on both sides of the Atlantic. He had become a uh, husband in 1870 when he married an heiress, Olivia Langdon, and uh, with that acquired both money and social status. And then he uh, was co-editor of a newspaper for a while, and he became a father three times by 1874. His first child died as a, uh, I think, 19 months. But he had two daughters. The most, uh, the youngest was born on June 8, 1874. So he was uh, in a position to look back over where he had been 
he had come from a abject poverty. Uh, he had to quit school at the age of 12 because his father died and he was apprenticed to a printer because there wasn't anything to feed him with. You know, the apprenticeship got him food and clothes. Um, otherwise, his mother wouldn't have been able to feed him. So he really came from extreme poverty. And having experienced that once, he never wanted to be poor again. And he wanted to make a lot of money, and he wanted to make it quickly. Well, by the time he got to 1874, he was quite comfortable because his wife was an heiress. Her fortune was $300,000 in 1874 money, which would be millions today. Okay, that summer, they moved. They were in Elmira, New York, which is where they spent their summers. It was where his wife's family came from. Uh, they were married there in the family house. And his wife's sister owned a farm there. Um, when her father died, he left the farm to her and her husband. Uh, her name was Susan Langdon Clemens. And she was, I think, uh, probably understood Sam Clemens better than her sister, who was married to him, did. Uh, her younger sister, Olivia, was married to Clemens. Susan was nine years older, and uh, she had been married, was childless. Her husband eventually suffered a stroke and died, and she remained childless for the rest of her life. But she was the favorite aunt of all the kids and kind of like a second mother to them. And she also liked her brother-in-law and realized that what he needed in Elmira in the summer of 1874 was a place where he could concentrate on his writing. So she took a piece of land on her farm that overlooked the stream and ran into the town of Elmira, and they were up on a hill. And she cleared a little space on this side of the hill and built an eight-sided study it looked like the pilot house of a boat, which, of course, uh, he was familiar with, having been a steamboat pilot. And he, this was perched on the side of the hill, and all alone, far away from the, you know, the uh, crowds of the house and whatever, and he could go there every day and lock himself in and write without being interrupted. Uh, Sue Langdon's gift, Sue Langdon's crane's gift of the study was one of the major factors in being able to write, uh, and during the rest of his writing career, from 1874 uh, all the way down to 1890 or more, he did almost all of his serious writing in the study on the mountainside in, on Forey Farm in Elmira. And the first fruit of that, uh, that gift was The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, which Twain began writing in the summer of 1874. He worked on it for about a year and a half, and then he sent it to the publisher. The publisher didn't get it out until December of 1876, thus missing the Christmas book trade, and that made Twain furious. Uh, he wanted to make money, remember? So he went into the publishing business himself uh, <laughs> a little bit later. Anyway... The story of Tom Sawyer uh, comes largely out of Clemens' own boyhood in Hannibal, Missouri, where he lived from the time he was four until he left town and um, went off on his own at 17. In those 13 years, he had a lot of experiences in Hannibal. Some of them went into the book. He had a lot of friends, most of whom got into the book under different names. He had great feelings about the town and a great understanding of it, and that got into the book. Uh, but he also fabricated a lot of the plot of the book. The main plot is a buried treasure story, and that's an entire fabrication. And there's also the murder story, which is the other part of the main plot, and that is also completely fabricated. So what I'm going to do with uh, the novel is how do you approach a novel like this. Well, the way I do it is to attack the novel structure. See what happens, when it happens, and how do the parts fit together. Now, the great advantage of structure, of looking for structures, every human creation has structure of some sort. Otherwise, it would be gobbledygook. It wouldn't hold together. You wouldn't under, you know, it wouldn't go anywhere. Every, play, every human creation has a beginning, a middle, and an end of one sort or another. 
And by following the structure of a book, for example, you find out what the author wanted to emphasize by where it's located in the book and by how he uses it. You find out that what is related to the relationships between parts of the book, and you don't leave anything out. Uh, by just skimming a book, you really don't know what's in context and what to leave out, you know, what, what's not important. Structure tells you what the author wanted the book to say. And this is a technique that I learned at the University of Chicago. Uh, as far as I know, the only place I've ever heard of that teaches it this way. But um, it's fabulous. It's, it's the secret to my whole career and my whole life in reading. Um, and uh, everything I've done, really, is based on uh, understanding how works, works are put together, whether it's a bridge or a suit of clothes or a novel or a play, it always has structure. And the structure tells you what the uh, author creator intended to do. So let's look at the structure of the Adventures of Tom Sawyer. It has 35 chapters. Now, I don't know if anybody else would think of looking at the number of chapters first, but uh, that's what I did in this book. There are 35 chapters. And there are four principal storylines. I do. The first is a detective story. And Tom Sawyer is, in fact, in part a detective story. This is not by accident. Tom Sawyer is a, the first of Twain's novels. Later on, when he wrote Puddinhead Wilson, Puddinhead Wilson was the fifth detective story published in the English language. And it's almost, you know, more clearly a detective story. But um, there had only been four previous detective novels published in English when he wrote uh, Putin Ed Wilson. We'll get to that another night. All right, this story, four principal storylines. The first is the murder of Dr. Robinson, the subsequent capture and trial of Muff Potter, who was not guilty, the uh, escape and eventual death of Injun Joe, who was the murderer. So that's a detective story plot. The second plot of the story, the second uh, series of, of um, adventures in the story, is the bromance between Tom Sawyer and his girlfriend, Becky Thatcher, which begins in Chapter 6 and culminates in Chapters 30 and 32, 32 with their adventures in the cave and their ultimate deliverance from the cave. The third story is about Tom Sawyer's pirating career, and that occupies Chapters 13 through 19, which is the physical center of the book. And one of the things you always look for when you do an analysis of structure is what's in the center? What did the author put in the center? And why did he put it there? Now, the reason this is so important is it's not hard to create a beginning for a work. And it isn't that hard to create an end. But the weakest part of any structure is what's in the middle because it's not supported directly by anything. For example, if you build a bridge across the river, you're going to have a pier on the shore on one side, and you're going to have a pier on the shore on the other side. But the question is, how do you hold up the middle? Uh, there are ways of doing it. Suspension bridge does it by cables. Uh, a cantilever bridge does it by cantilevering. Uh, a trestle bridge does it with a trestle. But in each case, something holds up the middle. And in a work of art, in a work of art, whether it's a piece of uh, uh, literature, whether it's a piece of music, whether it's a uh, visual piece of visual art, something occupies the center. And in order to reinforce the center, the author or creator frequently will use the most important material to, uh, you know, to uh, shore up the center, to make the center strong. And that's where you frequently, not always, but frequently, will find the best, best hint to what the author's real intent was. So what occupies the middle of the adventures of Tom Sawyer, chapters 13 to 19 in the book of 35 chapters? The story of Tom and how he gets his friends to go out and play pirate um, in the center of the book. Then there is the fourth story, which is Tom and Huck's search for and eventual discover of a buried treasure. That doesn't start until chapter 25 of the 35-chapter book, and then it continues to the presentation of the gold in chapter 34, and chapter 35 is a coda to the rest of the book. 
Now, in addition to these four interlocking principal narratives, there are other chapters devoted to Tom and his friends at play, the first part of the book, pictures of village life, including the school recitation scene in Chapter 21, to local folklore, and the descriptions of nature. And there are a number of scenes, in the first eight chapters particularly, which center on the personality of Tom Sawyer himself and define his relationships with his environment, with his friends and peers, with the adults in the village. At the same time, they show us his moods, his motivations. So the question is, it's a very rich mixture with these uh, four different stories, but what holds it together? And there are several things that Twain uses to hold the book together. The first is the time framework. The entire book takes place in the course of a single summer, beginning on a Friday afternoon in June, June 14th, we can work that out from the uh, context, and concluding before school reopens the following autumn. So it is all contained in a single summer. The second thing that is so important about holding the uh, story together is the place. Nobody in the novel ever is seen outside the town of St. Petersburg, which, of course, is molded on uh, Hannibal, where Mark Twain grew up. When a character leaves the town, as Becky Thatcher and Injun Joe do from time to time, they disappear from the story. So there is a very narrow focus of place. The events all occur between the top of Holiday's Hill on one side, or Cardiff Hill, it's called the book, and the cave on the south side of town. If you go to Hannibal today, those are still the uh, landmarks that um, more or less uh, create the borders of the town, the cave on the south and the hill on the north. And the town is located between the two on the river. Now, the most interesting thing about the town is how the world of this town is described so ambiguously. There's a phrase in the book that has been constantly, constantly quoted uh, over and over again, and it probably is the thing the reader thinks of most when he thinks of the town. The phrase is, the white town drowsing in the sun. It implies a kind of an Eden nestled between the great river and the hills, uh, a boy's paradise, the prototypical American town, the perfect homeland, you know. And yet, if you read the book carefully, the novel gives us a quite different view of St. Petersburg as well. It's dull, dreary, a mud-spattered backwater. Nothing happens much to break the monotony of existence. The atmosphere is stifling. The people have pretensions to commerce, culture, and class. But, just as often, they're ignorant, foolish, short-sighted, prejudiced, superstitious, and poor. The catalog of unpleasantries we encounter in the novel is surprisingly inclusive of the sins of the world. In St. Petersburg, we find in this book drunkenness, duplicity, theft, obscene cruelty, burglary, grave robbing, and murder. And always and everywhere, the most persuasive, pervasive wrong of them all, slavery. St. Petersburg is a slaveholding town, and nobody seems to realize that there's anything wrong with slavery in this town. Not only is it a cruel and violent place, it's also incredibly ignorant. The children believe that U.S. Senator Thomas Hart Benton, who is coming to give a speech on the 4th of July, stands 25 feet tall, and they're terribly disappointed when, he find, when they find out that he's really only six feet. Religion is a combination of tedious sham and memorized platitudes in which the congregation is hardly more interested than Tom himself. The difficulty, uh, there's a, the minister, for example, has great difficulty trying to collect his salary. And when the church does put its heart into singing on the occasion when the uh, congregation is, finds the pirates coming home, it sounds so completely different than the ordinary service because this one time the, the people are really singing because they mean it. Education in the town consists mostly of rote memorization enforced with a hickory stick of hitting the kids. So in short, when you look more closely at St. Petersburg, the white town is hardly in the Eden 
but something much closer to what Huck Finn would call the other place, that is to say, um, the realm of Hades. So this microcosm of the world is a stage on which the adventures of Tom Sawyer is played out, and that the entire book is focused so narrowly is one of the important ways in which Twain holds his material together. And the third and most important factor that unifies the novel is the character of Tom Sawyer himself. He dominates the book from the first page to the last, and he's in nearly every page of it. The only time he's not center stage in the book is during the adventure when Huck saves the Widow Douglas from Injun Joe's revenge. And that's about two chapters or three chapters late in the book. Everything else in this novel is brought about by, or is defined by its effect on, Tom Sawyer himself. Therefore, in order to understand the book, we really have to understand Tom. We have to define his position relative to his peers and the community as a whole. And so, in order to really understand the novel, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, we really have to understand Tom Sawyer. In other words, the structural analysis of the novel indicates that a, this is a character study, and the key to understanding it is to understand the, the um, personality of Tom Sawyer himself. How are we doing, gang? Anybody listening? We're here. Are you with us? Um. Hello? Oh, yes. We're, we're listening. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now right let's talk you. about who Tom is. The first thing we know is that he comes from a broken family. There is no mention whatsoever of a father. He lives with his Aunt Polly, who tells us that Tom is her own dead sister's son. We know that his younger brother, Sid, is actually a half-brother, and that Mary, who is based on um, the character of Wayne's own sister, is not a sister, but a cousin. I challenge anybody to figure out the dynamics of this family. Uh, there really is no way of knowing who is the father or mother of whom. <laughs> and anyway, the, the Sawyer family pedigree is full of confusion, impossible to sort out. It's also impossible to to assign an age to Tom. Um, in the first few chapters of the book, he seems to be about seven or eight. Later on, he's more like 12 or 13. Uh, when he shows off to Peggy Thatcher, he's a, a little boy. But when he takes her punishment at school, when uh, she tears the uh, master's book and uh, he takes her punishment, uh, he does it as a teenager, um, seeking her uh, approval and attention. It is also not fair to identify Tom Sawyer in the novel with Samuel Clemens as a boy. There is a lot of Sam in Tom Sawyer, and some of the adventures did actually happen to the author when he was a boy, but there's at least as much fiction in Tom Sawyer as Clemens. Mark Twain wrote in the preface to the novel that Tom Sawyer was created out of a combination of characteristics belonging to three boys. And however many grains of salt you use to make that remark, you still can't identify Tom with Sam. So the only way to really understand who Tom Sawyer is is to look at what he does in the book and why he does it. And only after we have seen what Tom does and why he does things, can we decide what kind of a boy he is. In the very first chapter, the very first thing he does is steal jam. He's been eating it in the closet while Aunt Polly's looking for him. She catches him, but he escapes her by the old fool, April Fool's trick of shouting, Hey, Auntie, look behind you! And she turns around and he scrambles over the fence and gets away. Aunt Polly then tells us, in a few words, a lot about Tom. Quote, he appears to know just how long he can torment me before I get my dander up, and he knows if he can make out to put me off for just a minute or two or make me laugh, oh, I'm not angry anymore and I can't hit him a lick. End quote. She also clues us into one of Tom's most important characteristics. Quote, he hates work more than he hates anything else. End quote. <laughs> Page or two later, He's found stealing, this time, sugar at the dinner table. And through an observation by his half-brother Sid about the thread on his collar, the fact that he's been playing hooky comes to light. Uh, 
Next, he gets into a, fight, a fight with a new boy in town, uh, which obviously stems from Tom's jealousy because the new boy has new clothes and is wearing shoes, and it wasn't even Sunday. In short, after just one chapter, we know that Tom is both cunning and selfish and has an inferiority complex which drives him to do things that will inflate his ego and make him feel better about himself. That's one chapter. Chapter two is called The Glorious Whitewasher. It's probably the best known scene in the book. Tom is supposed to whitewash the fence as punishment for his uh, misdeeds on a Saturday morning. Well, he doesn't want to be working on a Saturday morning. He comes up with the idea of getting the other boys in the village to pay him for the privilege of doing his work for him. Now, this trick is much admired as proving Tom to be smarter than the other boys in the village and thus somehow more worthy of our appreciation. And I dare say that uh, the vast majority of readers of Tom Sawyer would admit their impression of Tom's trick is favorable, and they they, uh, appreciate him and admire him for pulling it off. But it's well to remember that Tom's ruse is designed for two purposes. The first is to escape doing the work of whitewashing the fence, and the second is to make a profit by his deception. Now, in the great pantheon of American values, neither avoiding work or swindling people um, is, is, is an enshrined, enshrined value. Tom acts more like a young crook than like an all-American hero. His motives are self-aggrandizing, and he succeeds because he does possess a cleverness beyond that of his friends. But his behavior can hardly be called admirable if one overlooks the humorous aspects of it. And that's the problem with the behavior of Tom through the whole novel. Everything Tom does is for either the purpose of furthering himself, gathering more glory for himself, somehow amusing himself, or accumulating some kind of wealth for himself. He has no feelings whatsoever about the um, feelings of others, no caring whatsoever about the feelings of other people, and he is blissfully insensitive the consequences that his actions may produce. In chapter 3, we see see another facet of Tom's character. Again, he's caught stealing sugar again, but Tom is delighted when Sid, also attempting to steal uh, sugar, breaks the sugar bowl. Tom expects Sid to get a rap from his aunt's knuckle, a palm, her stick, but he's stunned when she belts him instead more or less on general principle, because she knows he steals sugar all the time. She just doesn't catch him at it. Well, he retaliates by sulking, trying to make Aunt Polly feel guilty. And presently, he begins to feel sorry for himself, and he sits on a raft, brooding, thinking about how pleasurable it would be to inflict sorrows on the other people in the village, his aunt particularly, and the new girl he's just met, who don't appreciate him enough. How can he do this? Well, painless martyrdom would do the thing. Well, the scene ends comically when the housemaid dumps the chamber pot out the window on him, but another part of Tom's makeup has been revealed. He longs to manipulate the feelings of others into giving him the love and respect which he feels he doesn't get. Well, as he was defeated and deflated at the end of Chapter 2 and Chapter 3, he is deflated again in Chapter 4. But by the time the real action of the novel takes place, we have a very good picture of Tom. A complete picture drawn with some detail, and it's not a very pretty portrait if you are clear about reading it and understanding it. And yet somehow, Tom has escaped serious censure for over a century of affectionate readers who tend to regard him as a rascal, but refuse to take him too seriously as a villain, as indeed I think the author intended. Tom's next big adventure is his pirating experience, and he conceives of it in Chapter 8. After Becky rejects him, he offers her an andiron knob, his uh, his great gift to her, and she's mad at him, and uh, she throws it back at him. So he muses, how would she feel if he were dead, like little Jimmy Hodges? And then he thinks about dying um, temporarily. (laughs) He doesn't want to die, he just wants to die temporarily. He rejects in turn the ideas of becoming a clown or a soldier or a savage and finally decides on piracy as a way to awe the town. 
And he's confirmed in his decision to run away when his aunt berates him for breaking her heart and when Becky throws the anti-iron back on his desk. And finally and completely, he shows off for her on her return to school after an illness, and she says, hmm, some people think there's something special. So in other words, his real motivation for running away and being a pirate is to manipulate the feelings of other people in town and to punish them for not loving him enough and ultimately to return in glory to an awe-stricken community. Well, the pirating sequence occupies the center of the novel. Remember I said how the author will frequently give you a clue as to what the novel is about by what's in the center. Well, what, do we can, what can we say about Tom and his friends as pirates? First of all, they don't even make any preparations for bad weather. They're totally thoughtless and heedless. Secondly, he goes home in the middle of the night, leaves the other boys on the, on the island, goes home in the middle of the night, motivated by some stirrings of conscience. But on coming home and finding out that there's going to be a big funeral, he decides to go back to the island. In other words, he puts aside any any concern for the uh, hurt feelings of his aunt and his cousin and his brother and anybody else in town. He puts aside any kinds of concerns in favor of anticipated triumph and glory for himself. And then he makes matters worse later by lying about the visit, saying it was a dream and making Aunt Polly an object of ridicule. The pirating story culminates in the most important chapter of the novel, which is chapter 19. It's the morning after the pirating, ex pirating experience. And here, for the only time in the book, Tom is confronted by Aunt Polly, one of his victims. And she gets at him. She says, oh, child. He hangs his head and sorry. She says, he's sorry, but he excuses himself. He didn't mean to be mean. He just didn't think. And Aunt Polly sums up Tom's whole character in one line. You never think, child, you never think of anything but your own selfishness. And that is Tom Sawyer. That is the indication of his character. He never changes in the course of a book. He's the same person at the age of seven or six at the beginning of the book as he is at the end. One adventure follows another, but everything he does is a never-ending search for self-aggrandizement, ego massage, or the desire to manipulate the emotions of others to make them feel pain for not appreciating him enough. On no occasion does he demonstrate any serious consideration for other people's feelings. And on that one occasion when conscience does stir him to take some action, he overcomes it uh, in favor of a glorious return to his own funeral. In brief, Tom Sawyer is as selfish and unfeeling a character as any in American literature. Except nobody sees it. Uh, it's abundantly clear that Tom's deeply flawed character has been ignored or overlooked as much by the other villagers in St. Petersburg as it has been by a hundred and something years of delighted readers. Look to Aunt Polly, for example. She's quite aware of his insensitivity and selfishness, and she suffers a bit more than anybody else, and yet she's all too willing to forgive him for everything, even when she knows she shouldn't. Other people, like Judge Thatcher and the Widow Douglas, see a great future for Tom. His image is a not-too-good boy, blinds them to his real inadequacies. They see him as they want him to be, not necessarily as he is. And generations of readers have done the same thing. Now, it's easy to see how this misreading of Tom's character comes about, because both the characters of the novel and its readers as well, we see so much of Tom in so many varied situations that we lack perspective to recognize him for what he really is. And there's a cheeky quality about everything he does, which is never quite saucy enough to make him see him as a brat, but is quite attractive in comparison with the, duller, the other dull people in town. And the ultimate source of Tom's charm is that he's bad, but he's bad good. He's never outside the pale. He plays at evil and piracy and things like that. But it's no accident that his games of being a robber and a pirate are contrasted with the reality of crime as carried out by Injun Joe and his partner in the book. And Tom, whoever he is, will never be an Injun Joe. He is part of town society. He's not hostile to it. So the personality of Tom is one of the things that holds the novel together. And one of the things that points out uh, Tom's personality is the comparison between Tom and Huck Finn. 
It doesn't start uh, to appear in the novel until chapter 6, but slowly infiltrates his way into it and becomes uh, actually a leading character by the end of the book. And it's because we have Huck in the book that we can see that Tom is a play actor. Huck really is a uh, outside the, the um, pattern of town. Uh, he hauls water, um, has to eat with the slaves, which was the, the, something that no white person would do in those days. Um, but he does it because he's hungry. He has no restraints from the village. Everybody uh, looks down on him. Even Tom looks down on him and doesn't want him to be part of his adventures when there are other people around. So partly we see Tom through himself, and partly we see his shallowness and his, uh, what would you say, uh, being part of the town, not against it, by comparison with Huck. Some other aspects of the book. The language of Tom Sawyer. Uh, Mark Twain had an incredible gift for vernacular speech reproducing vernacular speech. And when he does it, uh, he does it so well that his characters <clears throat> talk themselves into immortality. But Tom Sawyer, which may have been the finest and most sustained presentation of colloquial American speech ever put on paper when it was published, uh, is a flawed book in this regard because it also contains an impersonal narrator who might be Mark Twain, who interrupts the flow of the, uh, of the narrative, of the uh, language, and I think weakens it. Secondly, Tom Sawyer is a novel of nature to a great degree. St. Petersburg is very much on the borderline between civilization and the untamed natural world. And for the first time in his literary career, Mark Twain presents nature as an element of force of great power and endurance, impersonal and disdainful of human conduct. And first and foremost aspect of the natural world, almost a character in the book by itself, is the Mississippi River, which flows endlessly uh, in front of the town onto the sea. The people in town never get far away from it. Uh, they live on it and in it. It is, can be said to create the town because it's the, uh, the highway into the town that gives it economic life. Uh, is there a fishing hall, a swimming pool, the cleaning agent, and for the kids, it's even more so than for the adults. And the river is also their friend. Where does Tom go when he wants to uh, think? He sits down on a raft by the river. Other parts of nature, uh, also in this um, book, the nature of, the pretty, prettiness of nature contrasts with Tom's uh, chore of having to whitewash the fence. In Chapter 14, we have the first of Mark Twain's many pictures of dawn on the Mississippi. In Chapter 16, there's the awesome power of an electrical storm. And in Chapter 33, the indifferent, eternal enormity of nature is symbolized by the drop of water, which falls every three minutes, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, century after century, millennium after millennium. Tom Sawyer is also pervaded with superstitions, and they're fascinating, and yet some of them actually uh, earn some credence. Uh, we don't know what Twain wants us to believe about superstitions. He makes fun of them, and yet sometimes they come true. So language, nature, and superstition are three facets of Tom Sawyer which make the novel what it is, and it is a wonderful story. Even today, it's the best-selling book by Mark Twain, it will probably remain in print forever, and it's not hard to explain its fabulous popularity. It has everything. It has a blood and guts murder plot, a frightful villain, an appealing devil-may-care hero, as long as you don't look at him too closely, a childhood romance, gothic horror, a buried treasure story, and lots of comedy. Put all these elements together, and they add up to a publisher's dream. And yet it's such a rip-snorting good story that it's tempting to overlook a great deal of the serious material which is not at first apparent, but is clearly seen when you look at the book closely. It's full of themes and ideas, some of them worked out and some not, but when they are recognized, they not only help clarify the novel, but they relate it to Twain's other works. Now, I used to think that Tom Sawyer was a great juvenile adventure, but I didn't think it was anything more than that. 
having reread it and studied it and thought about it for 30 years, I can't believe that anymore. And I am going to try to demonstrate why I see Tom Sawyer as more like than unlike Huckleberry Finn, which is its successor, and why I now see the book less as a uh, out, something outside of the rest of Twain's work and more as a part of his developing an interrelated body of work. It is a remarkable example of juvenile adventure, uh, one of the finest novels of this type ever written, and the only one I can think of who could write that, that kind of literature as well is Robert Louis Stevenson. I always thought that uh, Tom Sawyer might have been influenced by Stevenson's um, Treasure Island, but as a matter of fact, I found out that Treasure Island wasn't written until five years after Tom Sawyer. And some of other others, uh, Stevenson's works were even later. So what wonders instead, to what degree was Stevenson influenced by Twain? And in fact, the two writers did meet once. According to Twain's autobiography, they met for an hour in um, Washington Square Park on a bench in New York uh, once and talked presumably about their works. Anyway, what else is there in Tom Sawyer that doesn't come to the obvious uh, front? It is social criticism. One hardly thinks of Tom Sawyer in the connection of being social criticism, and yet the school graduation exercises is a biting attack on the kind of false education that they represent, on the teacher who inculcates it by vigorous, vigorous application of his rod, and the society which accepts that kind of trash as education. Likewise, religion, as it is found in St. Petersburg's Little Church, is dull and boring and irrelevant. Among the specific targets of Twain's social criticism are the townspeople who first want to lynch Injun Joe but are afraid to do it, and afterwards they circulate a petition to the governor to pardon him. And, of course, the greatest irony of all is the pervasive evil of slavery, which nobody notices. Now, one of the best lines of the book is in a little footnote where the boys are hearing a howling dog in a, in, in, late at night in the tan yard, and the boys think it's Bull Harbison. dog's name is Bull Harbison. Why is the dog's name Bull Harbison? Well, if Mr. Harbison had owned a slave named Bull, he would have been Harbison's Bull. The slaves don't get family names. But the dog is Bull Harbison. He does get the family name. Huck reinforces the absurdity of this. Huh? Huh? What? Go ahead. You're, you're fine. Go you're ahead. Fine. Yeah. You're fine. Huck reinforces the absurdity of the uh, reference yep. of the uh, slave not having a second name by pointing out that kings only have one name, too. Well, Tom Sawyer is also a novel of social criticism on a different level. It's a criticism of the people in the town who don't see Tom as he really is. And you can take that one step further. Who else is the butt of the joke? for not seeing Tom as he really is. The reader. Huh? Yes, How about it? The reader. Tom Sawyer is a novel that very few people would think of as a satiric attack on the readers. But in fact, to the extent that the readers of the book feel about Tom the way the people in the novel do, that's exactly what it is. It's a novel of deep social criticism of the whole American society, not only the people of St. Petersburg. Well, there's much, much more to talk about in this, this wonderful uh, first book. Some of the things that are in it are not explored in the book, but are introduced in Tom Sawyer, and then Mark Twain picked up the ideas later on and wrote about them in his other books. And in this sense, The Adventure of Tom Sawyer is more than a story of Clemens' boyhood. It's also his first exploration of his own subconscious. And one can argue that Mark Twain's greatness as a novelist in part derives from his willingness to recognize the significance of what he had dredged up from his, up from his unconscious while writing this book and to explore the implications of these ideas in his later works. It's as if ideas were introduced semi-consciously or subconsciously. And in fact, we know that this can happen in, in literature. 
Uh, one of my close friends is a well-known um, present-day American novelist who's written several popular books. And I met him after he'd written his first one, and our friendship deepened to the point where he invited me to read the manuscript of his third book. Well, in the course of reading it, I was struck by what I saw to be a significant growth in my friend's work as a novelist. In other words, he began to use symbols. And when I congratulated him on the way he had used a particular symbol to clarify and unify the novel, he looked at me with surprise and he said, Did I do that? I wasn't aware of that. His subconscious mind had taken over. And it was not until I read the book and um, said what I saw in it that he realized just what he had put into it. And I suspect that much the same thing happened to Mark Twain when he wrote Tom Sawyer. The process of writing the book evoked from in him ideas which he had never planned to bring out or knew were, or even knew were there. Uh, so Mark Twain, I asked next, why did Mark Twain write this book? What was he thinking of? Remember, he wrote it as he was thinking about how far he'd come uh, between the age of uh, 17 when he left Hannibal and the age of 39 when he started writing the book. And I suspect that he didn't write it for publication at all. I think he probably wrote it for his own enjoyment. Uh, he had done that previously with the aspects of the story. He wrote in 1870 something called The Boy's Manuscript, where he talks about a boy growing up in a village like Hannibal. His name in that one is Billy Rogers. Later on, he wrote, uh, two or three years later, he wrote another piece, a play, which was never done, uh, never produced, but it was. It uses the name Tom Sawyer for the character uh, because Tom, uh, Tom Sawyer was the name of a bartender with, uh, who Clemens had known in San Francisco, and he appropriated the name Tom Sawyer uh, as a better fit than Billy Rogers. And in fact, it has more of a ring to it, if you think about it. So anyway, uh, that was the second time he had used that same material. And now, uh, when he's looking back again from the, the uh, pinnacle of success that he's on, uh, he starts writing again about his boyhood. And I don't imagine that he really intended it to be published from the beginning. He did say, before he finished the book, two weeks before he finished the book, and he really didn't know what the book, where the book was going. He didn't know how he was going to end it. And he actually has a note in the book that says uh, that the author of a juvenile novel never knows where to end the book. When you write about adults, you end with a marriage. When you write about kids, you have to figure out where to end uh, without an obvious conclusion like a marriage. He also was reported as saying that this is not a children's book. He said, Tom Sawyer is not a boy's book. Boys won't read it. Kids won't read it. The only people who ever read it is adults. Uh, and he wrote a, a note at the beginning of the book which says, uh, I'm writing this book for adults. Try to help them think about what they were when they were kids uh, and how uh, strange the things they did were. And I think that's a lot of nonsense. Uh, his wife, Livy, and his friend, uh, William Dean Howells, convinced him that the book had sales, uh, sales potential if it were marketed as a juvenile novel, as a, uh, a kid's book. And he had sense enough to see that they were right. And Tom Sawyer appeared and has been thought of ever since as a children's book. But it isn't. It never was. And he said so himself. He said this is not meant for children. And there's a way you can tell that it wasn't really meant for children, and that is the terrifying scene of uh, Injun Joe and his partner talking about what they're going to do to the widow Douglas. Uh, they're going to punish her for having uh, her husband having turned Injun Joe out of the house one night with a bullwhip. And they're going to do nasty things to her. They're going to uh, mutilate her. Uh, when I read this book as a kid, that chapter I said, just shook me up. I said, what the hell is this all about? And why is it here? Actually, it's there because Howells and uh, Libby Clemens told Twain that he couldn't put a rape in the book. He was going to have it be a rape originally. But in a book for kids, you can't have a rape in a book for kids. So he puts mutilation in instead. <laughs> this is one of the strangest <laughs> things about this book. It is definitely not uh, the kind of thing you find 
in the children's literature. And again, as I say, the book is a terrific juvenile novel, but it isn't a juvenile novel. It's really an adult novel. And the only way you can really appreciate it is by going all the way through it and thinking about it and seeing how the language is adult and the situations are frequently adult and the characters are treated in an adult way even though they're kids. Um, and when you see the character of Tom and you see through it and you see that he's really not a very nice person, that's, uh, you see the book as a completely different kind of a, a piece of material than if you just see it as a, as a boy's adventure story. What did Tom, what was her, um, Clemens' intention? He wrote at the beginning of the manuscript that he intended the book to go through Tom's life into adulthood. But when he finished the book, he wrote a letter to William Dean Howells in which he said, I wanted to carry on the story into adulthood, but Tom is the wrong character for it. I can't do it with Tom. What did he do? He did go carry the story on, but he used a different character. He used the character of Huckleberry Finn, who starts in the story of Tom Sawyer as a minor character and winds up almost as important as Tom himself in the book. And as a great contrast to Tom, Tom is the good boy playing bad. Huck is actually the outcast from society. And you can see that if Tom doesn't change and is always part of society, you can't very well criticize society through Tom because he's part of it and he's accepted by it. Huck has the, the tremendous capacity as a character being outside society in the first place to expose the kind of uh, disastrous, awful things in that society which a character who's part of it cannot see and cannot expose. And that's, I think, what Twain went, meant when he said to, uh, in that letter to Howells, I can carry the story on to adulthood, but I can't do it with Tom Sawyer, the character. So the next time you read the novel, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, don't think of it as the brilliant adventure story for kids as it is, but think deeply, think more about it as what it, the other things it is, social criticism, uh, a rendering of uh, an exploration of Twain's subconscious ideas on things like uh, reality and cruelty and uh, um, you know, phoniness and uh, how good, apparent good can also be evil. And uh, ultimately, ultimately, Mark Twain became the greatest American writer, the greatest social critic we've had. And it all started with his first novel, uh, uh, Tom Sawyer, but I think almost unconsciously. It's a, it's a delightful book to read and a very provocative book if you think about it enough. And now, is anybody still out there want to ask any questions and want to talk to me? Have we put everybody to sleep? No, you have not. <laughs> I hope not. Bon no, Bonnie, I'll, not. I'll yield to you here, and then I may have a comment along the okay. way. So you well, start. As, as, a, as a teacher of literature, yeah. I can cert I, uh, as you were, uh, I, I can certainly understand why, uh, why in his having written this novel, having gotten across so much with people getting so little that that would be fascinating to you. Um, but if people, what do you think would happen if people really did understand um, Tom as a uh, as a boy that he was? If they really got all of the things that you've described, and why is it really apart from the aspect of literature that you like him so much? Well, because I think Mark Twain was far and away America's greatest writer. His okay. ability to to uh, do all these things. Uh, and at the same time, make people laugh while writing serious and bitter criticism is uh, almost unique. I can only think of one other American writer who I will put on the, uh, have the same, that's the same capacity, and that's William Faulkner. Uh, other than Twain, there, hardly any American writer uh, even comes close to, to Twain's ability to uh, amuse us, to teach us and to bamboozle us all at the same time and make us laugh about it. 
He's phenomenal. A brilliant, brilliant mind. Now, give you an idea how just how brilliant he was. Uh, he was a steamboat pilot on the Mississippi River for four years before the Civil War. To be a steamboat pilot on the Mississippi in those days, you had to know every foot of the river, up and down, 900 miles from St. Louis to New Orleans, in the dark, in a fog, and know where you were at all times, know how deep the water was, um, know where the channel was, know where all the reefs were, they were always changing. You had to have an absolutely fabulous knowledge of the river. And he had it. And that didn't, uh, you know, that kind of uh, knowledge, that kind of a brain is a tip-off to how great the, the man's intellect was. He was an almost entirely self-educated person. Uh, he said uh, in one of his marvelous lines, I never let my education interfere, I never let my schooling interfere with my education, quote-unquote. <laughs> um, I almost got the quote, quote yeah. but uh, uh, he read widely, read everything. He read history, he read the uh, political science, he read philosophy, he read uh, just everything. Um, and he did it all on his own nights while he was working as a printer during the day. When he was 12 years old, he left school, he didn't know much of anything. But uh, he began to, to read, and for a period of about, let's say, well, something like uh, seven or eight years, between 1860... Oh, let's see, 60, well, 61, between 1861 and, say, 1870, he educated himself about everything. It's one of the reasons why he is so interesting, because he never realized when he was a kid growing up in a slave state, in a slave city, uh, he never realized there was anything wrong with slavery. Nobody did in, in, uh, in the slave south. It was considered... Uh, it was just the way things were. And nobody thought about it as an evil. He did. He realized that he had been duped into thinking there was nothing wrong with slavery. And Howells said he was, uh, that his friend uh, Clemens was the most desouthernized southerner he'd ever met. Uh, he was guilty about a lot of things in his life. One of the things he felt guilt for was that he never had realized what was wrong, that slavery was wrong. And so later in his life, he did a number of things to overcome that. Uh, he courted black friends. Um, he paid the uh, fees for a black student to go through Yale University as his personal penance for slavery. And, of course, he wrote passionately about the rights of the underdog, uh, the rights of the uh, dispossessed, the rights of uh, and the injustice of um, the kind of thinking that, that we uh, still carry on so much today. He was bitterly anti-colonial. Uh, he wrote a, um, a tremendous piece against anti-Semitism. Um, he hated the uh, European uh, colonies and colonial movement. He opposed the American entry into the Spanish-American War because he saw it as a... Uh, Imperialist, imperialism at work. Um, he was a, a man years ahead of his time. Years ahead of his time. Now, I, I read, think, um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, you, go ahead. you basically are trying to show us, and I think you have, that he poked fun uh, at America, that he fooled the, you know, he's satirical with the reader and so on, uh, at the reader. Is, is Hannibal then? Uh, a microcosm of America, or is he looking way beyond that for, because of his travels and where he was 39 years of age? And is, well, is, is Hannibal the microcosm? What he did with, him, with the town is he did make it a kind of a microcosm, okay. uh, almost in a, in a way that, that doesn't appear in the book. And yet when you think about it, I made the point, he talks about the, the townspeople of Hannibal who don't see Tom as he really is, right. and the people of Hannibal are us. We are the people... <laughs> who identify with the people of Hannibal. Yeah. It could also be argued that we seldom, maybe in a sense, too, he's also saying that uh, if we really gave it some thought, we seldom see others as they really, they really are, are either. Yeah. We see people exactly. according and to the, the reason we don't, 
Well, the reason we don't, and this is one of his themes that comes up in, throughout his work, and we'll talk more about this with other, when we read other, other novels with this. One of his themes is that there are none so blind as those who will not see. Yeah. yeah. And we refuse, we as, as people, too often refuse to see reality. We see fantasy. We see the world as we want it to be, or as we think it should be. We don't look at ourselves and see ourselves as we really are. And it's painful to do that. It's painful to see that uh, see yourself as prejudiced and foolish and uh, money grubbing and whatever. Absolutely. And yet, Let's, this is why he's so relevant today, because the yeah. things he talks about, he isn't writing about slavery per se. Why is it that he wrote a novel in Huckleberry Finn, uh, in which he decries the status of the, of the slave and uh, and slavery in a book that was written? 20 years after slavery ceased to exist in the country. Yeah. What was he doing? He wrote a novel not about slavery per se, but about the kind of thinking and non-thinking that makes slavery possible. Yes. Yes. Good point. And I that, can't let... that's the greatness of Mark Twain. His, everything he said in 1880 or 1875, nothing has changed. It's yeah. that the problems are still nope. the same, mm -hmm. sure. and we still don't see ourselves. Uh, Very I think true. the man is, as I say, far and away the great American writer. And the uh, next time we do this, I'll talk about the book that I think is clearly the great American novel. And, oh, of course, yes. that's The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Absolutely. I agree with you. Let me see if anybody from the audience, before we conclude, has sure, a question. Or they'll, they'll be upset with me here. So, does yes. anyone in our audience have a question, please? Here, come to the computer. Yeah, I don't know. One more time, final time. <laughs> and this is embarrassing here to our guests. Do we, does any of you in the audience have a question? Maybe they don't. Uh, maybe they don't. <laughs> well, actually, you've summarized or given us so much information to uh, on this whole story. And I don't know about other people, but I always was under the impression that Tom Sawyer was a children's book and thought that that uh, I think one of the things that uh, you have done is inspired me to read this book. And uh, probably, you know, even by then, there may be more questions. But it's it certainly is a, a story that, uh, that very well may be more adult than we all kind of, you know, had uh, reason to think. I mean, many of us have read it as children, but I think it might be a different thing to read it as an, as, as an adult. Hello, this is Don, and I really enjoyed your presentation. Uh, is the book being used today for reading, or has the N-word killed it? And it will probably never go out of print. Uh, every library has it. The one that's more comp and that you make a good point, because the word, uh, you know, the N-word appears in the oh, book. Yeah, but not as many times as in Huckleberry Finn. However, no. anybody who's ever read Mark Twain cannot possibly think that he was prejudiced Prejudice. in any way. He uses the term because that was the, the language of the times, yeah. and I think he used it knowingly in an ironic way. Uh, you know, Jim in, uh, in Huckleberry Finn is, uh, along with Huck, the, the outcast, the nigger and the, uh, and the, the outcast, outcast boy. Mm -hmm. And they're the heroes of the book. Absolutely. The only two good people in the book. <laughs> Jim is a noble man. Yeah. One of the things we'll talk about in, uh, in the future is something that comes up in this book a little bit and comes up much more in Huckleberry Finn. What is noble behavior? What is good behavior? Right. How do we know what we should do? What guides do we have to behaving in this world? And that's a question that Mark Twain could not find a good answer to. Well, and we won't talk about the book too much, but when Jim saves Huck because he faked the drowning, or, you know, I'm drowning, I'm drowning, and he jumped in and Jim couldn't swim, but he, he, as I remember it. and he, Well, it's not quite that. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, not quite. Okay, you can explain it better next time. Yeah, but basically, yeah. Huck was very touched, you know, by what he did. Huck is, yes. Yeah. Huck, Huck, because he's an outcast, and because he thinks he's worthless, and because he thinks that uh, the society is... Uh, better than he is, is free to see Jim not as a, 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 a pariah, but as a human being. Right. I am right. talking ahead of myself. This is the direct Okay. 
<laughs> well, Ira, we want to thank you so very much. We all will read Huckleberry Finn, and uh, as my wife pointed out, we, I want to read this book, Tom Sawyer, again, you know. And uh, so we will read Huckleberry Finn, and we thank you so much, and we're going to have you on um, soon. I'll be in touch. I won't call you tomorrow. I'm leaving town early, but I will to thank you personally for this great uh, presentation. Oh, that's all right. Uh, I, like I don't know when want you do want to do it, but uh, we'll we can talk do about it. it. Yeah, okay, later in the summer. Yeah. Okay? We'll, we'll Thank you it. very much for inviting me. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ira. Okay. Uh, okay. I, I hope it went well. It okay. went very well. It did. Ira, they always say to me on the show that I do when I start asking people for questions and we have that big silence, I am told by people and have been told before that that just means you've done a good job and people were yep. just taking in a lot of information, and I wouldn't worry about it. <laughs> Thank you. No, you, you did fine. Thank you so you much. Bye now.